Blog Talk Radio. Hello once again. It's a new episode of the AJ Bruno Show. Today I'm joined by Mark Fox, a retired Vice Admiral in the U.S. Navy and former Deputy Commander of United States Central Command. Hello again, and it's an honor to speak to you. Hi, AJ. I'm glad to be on your show. So I'm curious, uh, what was it that made you want to be a pilot, and in particular a naval aviator? You know, I grew up in West Texas, and uh, I'd never seen the ocean before I went to the Naval Academy. But there is some strange uh, urge. I can't put my finger on it, but I, I heard, I felt the call of the sea. I always wanted to fly airplanes. And when I found out that there were airplanes that landed on ships, that just sealed it for me. And so I'm one of those rare people that as a little boy, I got to grow up and do exactly what I really wanted to do. Wow. So I read that you landed on 15 different aircraft carriers in your career. How can you describe the experience of living and flying off of carriers to anyone who hasn't done it firsthand? Well, it's a, both the takeoff and the landing are events. There's nothing uh, routine, although once you learn how to do it, flying around the ship in the daytime is just good, clean fun. Um, you go from a standing start or a stop to, you know, uh, from zero airspeed to about 160 or 70 knots in about two and a half seconds. And so you get a pretty good jolt. It's, um, and then when you come back and land on the ship, it's also an event since you're flying at flying speed of, you know, somewhere probably around 100 and 135, maybe 140 knots, and um, you come in and land. So both the, the takeoff and the landing are events. Um, I loved every minute of it, and I would go back and do it all over again. Wow. One thing I'm curious about personally, because I used to think about being a fighter pilot, then I discovered if your eyesight isn't naturally pretty much perfect, you can wear prescription goggles or anything like that. Is that true, and you know why don't they allow that? Well, you do have to have good eyes, uh, good eyesight, and that's one of the criteria uh, you know, for flying. At the same time, uh, I think, and I'm not a, authoritative on this, but I think that there, there are – They've changed the way that their regulations are in terms of it can be correctable via some sort of a, um, you know, eye surgery or something that can correct it as well. Uh, but certainly when I was first flying, if I hadn't had, you know, 20-20 naturally, I wouldn't have been a, a naval aviator. No, makes sense. So is there a mission in your career you can talk about that was a particularly harrowing or difficult escapade? <laughs> um, well, probably the first – flight that I flew in Operation Desert Storm in January of 1991 uh, would be the most memorable probably. I wound up um, launching as a spare. In other words, I was a, a guy that was kind of in the backup just in case somebody had a problem with one of their jets. And uh, I wound up launching on the first daytime strike off of USS Saratoga uh, in January on January 17th of 1991. And um, I was on a bombing mission, so I was carrying four 2,000-pound bombs and a, two Sidewinder, two heat-seeking missiles, two Sparrows, uh, radar-guided missiles, and four 2,000-pound four bombs. So I was not looking for airplanes, enemy airplanes to shoot in front of me, but as it turns out, there were a couple of Iraqi MiG-21s that day that got between us and the target, and I shot one, and my wingman shot the other, and then we went on and uh, dropped our bombs on our target. 
So it was a it was a pretty high pucker factor flight, but it was also pretty exhilarating to actually do what you've always trained to do. That actually answers a question I have because I came across a video where there's a MiG-21 being shot down, and there was some debate about who the pilot was, but some people thought it was you, and I guess that pretty much confirms it. Well, I, I shot down a MiG-21 on the first day of Desert Storm, and my wingman, a guy named uh, Nick Mongello, was the guy that got the other one in that particular flight. Yes. Well. Hmm. So you also earned a Silver Star. Can you tell us about the experience related to that? Yeah, it was the mid-kill. Uh, so it was a, you know, for a while, uh, Nick Mongello and I were kind of the poster children for the strike fighter concept. Um, the ability to to do an air-to-air mission and then and then drop bombs on on a target. Uh, we were well trained. That, that's really my only claim to fame is not so much I was at the right place at the right time, uh, but I'm trainable, and I'd had some really good training. I was flying a terrific machine with very reliable ordnance and everything functioned exactly the way it should have. Wow. That's great. So one thing that I found particularly interesting about your background, um, you held a post or two posts in the white house under president Bush. Uh, what was that experience like working closely with him and how did it differ from others in your career? <laughs> well, I'd finished, I just finished my uh, air wing commander tour uh, on, on the constellation in 2003. And I'm, uh, became the deputy director of the White House military office. And so that's kind of the day-to-day uh, operations and all of the military support for the president kind of runs across your desk. So um, everything from deer ticks on Barney up at Camp David to making sure all of the, the nuclear football codes were correct and all of that sort of thing. So it's pretty wide ranging. It's a fascinating experience. Uh, I found it in many ways. And then after having been the deputy for, I guess, about 18 months, uh, I fleeted up and became the director um, and finished out there. It was a marvelous, um, it was a marvelous place to work. It was very, um, you know, you realize what a privilege it is to to walk into the White House at all and then have the chance to to be able to work there. It's a it's a double privilege, and, and I didn't I didn't take that for granted. Wow. It was very it was very similar in many ways. Uh, to being Air Wing Commander, although uh, I would I would point out in that you know Air Force One, every every organization is focused on the president, and so you've got a medical unit, and you've got a transportation unit, and you've got Marine One, and you've got uh, the White House mess, and you've got the the sailors and Marines up at Camp David. So there's a uh, the White House Communications Agency. It's just a very large organization uh, with a lot of disparate pieces that are all focused on giving. Uh, military support to the president, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So you would travel ever with him in Air Force One, or how did that work? On occasion, if there were things that was uh, that were related to military things, so the trips to um, I made a trip with the president to Iraq. I made a trip with him to Afghanistan, um, and you know to a NATO summit. So I didn't travel with him all the time, but anything that had a military flavor, I typically would be there. Hmm. So you've had a lot of different assignments in your career. Was that the one that you found the most rewarding, or was there another that really stood out? Um, I really loved being a fleet commander in Fifth Fleet uh, in Bahrain. 
I really loved being a strike group commander on the Harry S. Truman. Uh, I really loved being an air wing commander, CAG. So in general, the command tours, the opportunities to lead and, and uh, touch a lot of young sailors and Marines that are motivated, and I, I just really enjoyed that. Uh, so any of the command opportunities, I think, are the ones that I would point out as, as kind of being the highlights. Were you in command of an entire fleet? Was it just the strike fighter squadrons, or how did that work? No, it kind of it kind of graduates. So, you know, I was originally a commander of a squadron, and then later I got to be commander of an air wing, and then later I got to be commander of a strike group, and then later I got to be uh, commander of a fleet. So the fifth fleet, I was in command uh, from 2010 to 12 uh, over in Bahrain, and that was that was a tremendous uh, responsibility, and it was also a lot of fun. Wow, that's great. And was your flagship like uh, an aircraft carrier, or how does that work? Well, the headquarters in Bahrain, it, the the naval headquarters for Fifth Fleet is actually ashore in Bahrain, but I always made a point to go out and uh, I would visit every carrier and large deck amphibious ship that that came just to go over there and spend some time at sea. There's nothing better than being at sea with sailors and Marines. No, sounds. So in that same region, you also played a significant role in the war in Iraq. Um, That's something I have mixed feelings about. In particular, I think for the Christian community there, it was very devastating. Do you think that, you know, looking back, was it worth it? Or what are your reflections on your time there? Um. I think I'm sympathetic, quite frankly, to the decision that President Bush made. If you if you go back to the 9/11 era, and you know if if the terrorists had had their hands, if they'd had the opportunity to kill three million Americans as opposed to three thousand, they would have done it. If they'd had mm-hmm. the uh, a, a weapon of mass destruction, a nuclear weapon, or a, a you know horrible chemical or or a biological weapon, and so. Not knowing exactly all of the, you know, we thought we had pretty solid evidence that, you know, at the time that uh, Saddam had been a, you know, state sponsor of that, and he had all that, and of course that's been, you know, there's been a lot of after the fact um, angst about the fact that he didn't have the weapons of mass destruction and so forth, but you know, at the time, President Bush felt like his responsibility. I won't speak for him, but I think his. He felt that his responsibility was to protect the American people from further attack, and it certainly seemed like um, he felt like it was worth it. And at the time, as a guy who had been flying over Iraq uh, during the 90s when we were doing the no-fly zone enforcement, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the Iraqi gunners would shoot at us on occasion, and um, I personally thought it was a pretty good idea to to take somebody as bloodthirsty and as uh, as evil as Saddam, I thought that was not a bad thing. Um, you know, but at the same time, you kind of look back and you go, well, we up, upset the equilibrium in the Middle East, and there's a whole lot of second and third order effects that, that occurred. So at the time, I was sympathetic, and then with hindsight, you can look back and say maybe we could have done it differently. Mm-hmm. And some think maybe earlier that, um, you know, Instead of stopping and just keeping the Iraqis out of Kuwait, we should have went all the way to Baghdad back then. What do you think about that? Well, see, Bush 41, he built the coalition with the very clear charter that it was just to take back Kuwait. And so when he said, 
we're done. We had the 100-hour war. We had about a six-week air campaign. Um, he didn't have – that was not what the U.N. Security Council resolution said. And so we would not have – I don't th I think Bush 41 did an amazing job of putting that coalition together because there were Arabs in it. You know, Saddam was launching scuds against Israel, trying to draw them in and to try to fracture the mm -hmm. coalition. So I thought Bush 41 did a masterful job. Of, of putting the coalition together and <clears throat> um, basically defining the military objectives that the military attained, and we were we did exactly what he told us to do, and then we said, you know, we're done. Uh, we could certainly look back and have done things better and differently then as well, because obviously, you know, Saddam used his helicopters against the. Uh, the Shia down south and the Marsh, uh, Marsh Arabs were you know, decimated. I mean, there were some horrible things that happened because a lot of the Iraqis, especially down south, were kind of feeling like they they could now kind of rebel against Saddam, and he came back and crushed them. And that yeah. that's not a – you know, we kind of forgot about that, but then when we came back in 2003 and we expected them to, to greet us as liberators, there was a pretty bad memory from about 10 years before where <laughs> – They'd gotten all stirred up, and then we didn't do anything to help them. So there are some things that we could have done differently in the early 90s as well. Makes sense. So as a vice admiral, you were the deputy commander of United States Central Command. Uh, what can you tell us about your time in such a vital position? Well, that was my last assignment in, uh, in the military, and it was during a fairly eventful and consequential time. Uh, although I guess you could say that almost any time in the Middle East is eventful or consequential. Um, but the rise of ISIS and all of the horrible things that were going on in, in terms of basically um, Al-Qaeda of Iraq 2.0, if you will. Uh, so we were dealing with, um, you know, we, the U.S., had pulled out of Iraq completely by 2011 and um, – Ungoverned space and some, you know, what we've learned, you, you kind of learn this over and over again. The 9-11 attacks came out of Afghanistan, um, ungoverned or undergoverned or uh, space, you know, with, with a lot of bad guys that don't like us. Uh, Al-Qaeda of Iraq that morphed into um, ISIS came out of Syria and Iraq in ungoverned spaces. So it's not that we're the world's policemen, but when people attack us out of those ungoverned spaces, it has consequences for American citizens. So there's a reason for us to to keep an eye on that and to find a way to prevent that from happening. And that's that's the the campaign that we've been fighting ever since. Uh, I guess it was what 2014 or so. Yeah. When it comes to fundamentalism, though, I think sometimes we don't do enough. For instance, in Afghanistan. Okay, a you know democratic government was installed technically, but they have Sharia law there, and it's not really a very free society when they can you know execute people for converting out of Islam or something like that. What do you think about allowing them to still have something like that in their government, and could we have done something to you know not let it go down that route? Um, I'm pretty hesitant to tell people on the other side of the world what kind of law they need to live under. Um, at the same time. I want to create the conditions that will prevent bad people from attacking us. So there's a kind of a balance there. Um, you know, Sharia law is, you know, that's 
that's in the Quran. That's you know that's the way that Islam has developed. I mean, the great question of our day is: there a way for Islam to come to grips with modernity? And I mean, fundamental, uh, you know, radical Islam. Can can Islam, the way that we've seen it manifested itself, you know, from uh, you know Osama bin Laden or the ISIS and the Al Qaeda crowd, uh, can virulent Radical can can normal Islam deal with radicalism? I, I guess would be the way I, I would put it. And it has to be there. In my opinion, they've got to solve this problem. We've got to protect ourselves. But it's not our job, in my opinion, to go around and tell people what they ought to believe or how they ought to believe it. Um, I think that we're in a battle of ideas, quite frankly. And I think that we should uh, be helping the people who believe that we should figure out a way to live in a constructive and a positive. Uh, peaceful world as and where everybody can benefit as opposed to having people that are running around cutting people's heads off. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Sorry, we had a technical issue there, so we're still on. Yeah, where okay. did you lose um, me there? I was I was kind of waxing eloquent there about it's better to to live at peace with people around the world and and we've got to figure out a way to prevent radical Islam from from flourishing. And quite frankly, yeah. that is. In my opinion, that's the uh, that's the issue: is uh, how does how does Islam come to grips with modernity? Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. So that's actually a, a question, I guess, that's posed in, in something like Syria today. I think that's a a really big mess, and I, I you know we kind of support the rebel groups there, but the question is, are any of them actually democratic rebels who aren't going to try to install some sort of you know, radical government, um, is the government there sort of a lesser evil? What do you make of that whole quagmire? Well, I think you characterized it pretty well. Syria is a bleeding mm-hmm. ulcer internationally. Um, you have every, you know, there are thousands literally of uh, different kinds of groups there. Um, I wish that we as a nation had come up with a more coherent, coherent and a kind of a cogent policy of trying to contain that before we, you know, we didn't, we, we kept saying that Assad has lost the the legitimacy to lead Syria. So our publicly stated policy a few years ago was a regime change. And yet we didn't do anything about that. Um, so I think that, and of course, Putin has now inter, interjected himself into this to support uh, Assad as has Iran. And so you've now got, um, you know, Iranian. The Iranians are very interested in, in having a strong posture there in Syria, uh, and that is not to anybody's advantage. So um, it's a really difficult. It, it's you, you can't put it on a bumper sticker or a soundbite. It's a really complicated uh, issue, um, and so you find yourself in a place where the Kurds are the ones who were fighting uh, effectively against um, al-Qaeda of Iraq or as it turned into uh, ISIS. And so it is a, it doesn't lend itself to a neat solution. I'd wish that we had figured out a way, and it's hard to do this, but to put some parameters up there so we could have kind of had a, a national policy of containment to keep, because you see all of the all of the refugees and all of the overspilling um, you know, tragedy of you know things going into Europe and you know into North Africa. So it's a it's a hard it's a hard nut to crack. It's a hard problem, 
But, um, you know, you don't ever forget how people look to us. The United States is kind of the beacon of freedom and hope. And a lot of people really want, um, you know, they need our leadership so that we can kind of help shape conditions to create that hope for other people around the world. It's not our job to be the world's policeman, but it is our job to help inspire people to want to live in a better world than, you know, than they live in today. No, that makes sense. So I have a few more questions along this line. I'm curious about something though. At the end of your career, uh, were you aiming for that fourth star at all? And what are the determining factors in who reaches that level? You know, it's all about timing and all about uh, the needs of the nation at the time. And uh, certainly I was not wearing a hair shirt or trying to find a way not to be competitive, to be promoted. But at the same time, I had a remarkable and an amazing run, and I have no regrets. I can look back and say, Coach, I left it all on the field. There was nothing that I held back, and I had a great ride, and I loved every minute of it. Fantastic. No, I mean, even to reach that level, that's beyond impressive. I mean, there's so many officers that between, I guess, what, captain and uh, rear admiral, that there's not even space for them to reach that. So it must get really well, I, you know, All of my friends go, how in the world did you get there, Mark? <laughs> Well, that's funny. So moving forward, um, what are your thoughts and concerns about the state of the military and the U.S.'s position overall looking ahead? Um, my concerns about the state of the military, but number one, the U.S. military is a remarkable, a marvelous institution, and it's our job – to now make sure that it remains the marvelous marvelous institution to defend our nation. It represents all of, all of the values that we share in terms of opportunity and to treat people with dignity and respect. You, know, you have people from every walk of life, and they come in and they, they serve. And if you would truly be great, uh, certainly um, I think the best way to do it is to serve and to serve others, to do something for somebody else. And so there's going to be all kinds of challenges because, you know, the economy is improving and that's a, that creates competition for uh, businesses who want to get the same sharp people to work in their businesses as opposed to going to the military. So I think there's, a, there's an ongoing challenge just to, to continue to improve and to keep the core uh, capabilities of the military. I, but I really, uh, I really respect it. And, you know, the last time I checked, the military is one of the most respected institutions in our society, and there's a reason for that. We hold people accountable, and when they screw up, we hold them accountable, and we reward them when they do well, um, and we treat people with dignity and respect. And are we perfect? No. Um, <laughs> there are mistakes, and there are people who blow it and make uh, you know bad decisions, but they're held accountable, and then you know it moves on. So I think the reason that the American people respect the American military the way they do is because – we embody the very values that, that the Constitution has laid out about, you know, we, we believe all men are created equal, and we're uh, – actually, that's the Declaration of Independence. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it, right. the, the military represents the, the, the values that we, we hold dear in our nation. That's, that's how I feel, too. I think, though, in, in more recent years, some have been trying to push something of a more radical social agenda on the military. Do you have any thoughts on, on that and what's been done? Um, I think I'm going to just leave that one alone right now because it's uh, a lot of this is kind of done. I mean, I, 
Actually, I, I've I've enjoyed watching uh, Jim Mattis as the Secretary of Defense. He's all all about lethality and effectiveness of the military, and um, if there are standards that are met, he's and lethality is enhanced and teamwork and camaraderie are increased. You know, he's going to be all over that. So, um, but you know, that's a swamp I'm not going to wade into right now. Sure, sure. Is there one figure? in naval history, whether that's nowadays or in the past, who you really look to and admire, and uh, for what reasons? Oh, I think probably that comes comes to mind most most readily is Chester Nimitz. Um, you know, he was um, he was called up. He was a two-star when Pearl Harbor occurred, and he got called up and, and relieved Admiral Kimmel uh, at Pearl Harbor. Actually, Kimmel had been relieved, and then there was another guy in an interim, and then Nimitz took over. And he had this amazingly uh, – he kept the same team that Kimmel had and forged uh, a remarkable team and a plan. So I think Chester Nimitz would be the guy that uh, probably comes to mind as the most uh, impressive naval officer of the 20th century, at least, of the recent past. Uh, he was he was a remarkable leader, a remarkable man. And in that era that he's most known for, the World War II era, is that the – Part of our naval history that is, would you hold in the highest esteem? Is there another one that really stands out in terms of the deeds that were achieved? Oh, from a naval officer's perspective, World War II is just red meat. You know, mm-hmm. uh, fighting at sea, the blue water. I mean, that was a. Uh, so now, that said, just because <laughs> that was an amazing time, you don't get to choose your circumstances. So. Uh, don't live too much in the past. If you're a young sailor, you've got your own history to make. And um, I distinctly remember kind of feeling that way as a young person. And then I realized after a while, it's like, you know what, I we're making history. We're doing things that are important. And it may not be the Battle of Midway every time you get to go to sea, but um, you never know when the call is going to come. Um, so, you know, from a military perspective, it's your job to be ready if and when the, the call comes and nobody prays or hopes for peace more than the people in the military, quite frankly, because, um, you know, you understand, especially as you mature, you understand the, the horrible consequences and the difficult challenges. And, the, I mean, the nation, uh, it's, it's a serious thing when the nation sends its sons and daughters to war. Um, and they need the, the complete support of the nation when you do that. That's yeah. been one of the, the challenges of an all-volunteer force here over the years. You know, we're in, a what, our 17th year of, um, this war against, uh, you know, fundamental terrorists or in, uh, in the Middle East. And it's it's not like World War II where everybody's doing, you know, scrap iron drives or, or you know, there's – after 9-11, there was a great unifying moment, but this has been a long uh, – it's a different kind of war. It's our generation's challenge. I, I view this – here's the way I view this. This is like the Cold War – we in my generation dealt with the Cold War, and it seemed permanent when I first came into the Navy. And then one day, the old Soviet Union just imploded, and the Cold War was over. Hmm. And I'm convinced, with the long-term, long-sighted, patient, hard-working uh, game plan, this uh, terrorist threat is going to implode from its own evil weight, just the way that the, the Soviet Union did back in the day. But it requires a long view and you just can't say, well, we're going to put a bow on this. We're done. And, you know, your enemy gets a vote. No. 
I mean, it's certainly a much different challenge. You're fighting a flagless enemy, and especially being a sailor, it's not like they're out there with their fleets and you could face them head-on like that. It's kind of a, a dirty, dishonorable sort of war. Well, yeah, it's it's hard. It's not nearly as clean as a fighting somebody in a uniform, um, but it's still a war that the nation needs to have fought. And, you know, there's also the resurgent uh, activity now that you see from China and Russia at sea. And so there's suddenly a big shot of adrenaline throughout the military, but in the Navy in particular, saying, hey, we need a bigger fleet and we need to resource the fleet that we've got a much better to make it ready. So the Navy has been a little bit on the back foot in terms of not having the the kind of priority that was required during the terror war, although, the, you know, certainly all of the carriers that, uh, you know, they deployed to the Middle East for years and years and years um, and made enormous contributions towards the, the successful fight that we've had. Um, so, but there's not, you know, this war that we're in with um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda you know there won't be any uh, there won't be any surrender ceremony on the deck of a battleship. There will be no uh, diplomatic notices or anything sent that you know they've surrendered. It's gonna they will they will collapse. I'm convinced from their own evil. But you we can't let them uh, we can't let them up. We've got to maintain a, a very vigilant um, a very vigilant posture in that way. Well, I agree with that. But before we get to the final question here, I want to mention real quick you you brought up China. And their military buildup has been, you know, phenomenal. What do you think the real threat there is in the future? I mean, could we face a situation where they might try to, you know, go after Taiwan, force that back into into submission, and we have to intervene there? I mean, how much of a risk is that? Well, I think the Chinese have got a very thoughtful and long – they do have a long-term plan. And – you know, you can go back to 1996 when we had the Taiwan Straits crisis. We sent a couple of carrier strike groups, called them battle groups back then, and they couldn't do anything about that. And the, so the Chinese watched what we did, what we did in Desert Storm, and they watched in utter helplessness and frustration. We uh, operated a couple of battle uh, carrier battle groups off their coast, and they couldn't do anything about it. And that was part of the motivation. They said, we, we don't like that. And so they are very motivated to have their own ability to project power and their own ability to put large numbers of ships at sea. Uh, it's, it's hard to build a Navy overnight. They're doing it. Uh, I always respect any potential enemy. You never, ever, ever want to underestimate what they do. They've, they've put an enormous amount of time and effort into long-range uh, standoff weapons and, you know, they're building aircraft carriers and, and fighters and submarines and cruisers. They're, they are very serious about um, asserting themselves in, in um, that part of the world. Um, it's not a given that we're going to come to blows, but the best way to avoid a war is to be prepared for it. And if we're prepared for it, then that's a deterrent in its own right. And... Just because they have long-range weapons and just because they have ships and aircraft carriers and submarines and so forth, um, we've got a bunch of very smart and motivated folks ourselves, and we know how to come up with the tactics to deal with that and to figure out how, if we had to, how we would fight and how we'd win. Um, you know, the last time we had a near peer in a conflict was in Japan, you know, in World War II in Japan, 
probably in the 1942, late 1942 timeframe is when we were basically at parity. And um, I would, I'm not getting any uh, gratuities from the author, but a book that describes the campaign off of Guadalcanal is called Neptune's Inferno. And, you know, there were, there were 40, about 45, 4,600 American sailors who died taking Guadalcanal. There were about 1,600 Marines who died taking Guadalcanal. So there were basically three sailors who died for every Marine, which in both cases are bad, and each family had a tragic loss. But you normally think of, yeah, Guadalcanal was a really hard-fought Marine battle, and it was. But we lost, I think, pushing 30 capital ships. We lost 1,000 sailors in one night. Uh, so that was a hard, hard fight, and that's it's an unforgiving uh, fight. So battle, you know, war at sea is hard, and when your ship is hit, you got to keep her afloat. You can't, you you got to keep her from burning. Um, you got to know how to do damage control. There's a lot of stuff that goes into being a sailor in a conflict. Um, so that's what our sail, that's what our our navy is about. And for the longest time, we never had a hot war. We didn't have big hot wars. We had Vietnam, and we had you know, the the kind of the flare-ups, but we haven't had a sustained war at sea in a long, long, long time. And it's something that um, the Navy is focused on, and we understand, you know, it's it's not the Cold War, certainly. It's not the way it was, but uh, we, need to, we need to keep a weather eye on both on what the Chinese and the Russians are doing, no, I mean, which is why we need to build changed. ships. And we need to build the ships for the fleet. We need the aircraft carriers. We need the the submarines and the amphibious ships and so forth, the destroyer, you know, we need to have a fleet that's capable of handling that threat. Mm-hmm. Now, I was surprised when I discovered years ago that there haven't been any battleships in service for any Navy since like the early 90s. I didn't know that at the time, and, and I was surprised. Well, the battleships kind of took a professional setback at Pearl Harbor, and, you know, basically in World War II, there was suddenly this shock that, Airplanes off aircraft carriers were actually far more lethal against another ship than battleships. Battleships couldn't get close enough hardly. In rare occasions, they did, but by and large, battleships were overcome by tactical airplanes at sea. And so they're good for shore bombardment. You know, back in the day, everybody, you know, the the old Mahan, uh, big fleet, all of that sort of thing, that was over, that was overcome, that was outstripped really by the, the development of the aircraft carrier and airplanes at sea. Well, comes. So finally, I want to get to your current work. So you're now in the private sector. Uh, what is your role like now compared to when you were still in uniform? Well, I, I'm a corporate vice president now for a company that builds ships and uh, submarines for the Navy. So, uh, I may I took the uniform off, but I still feel that I'm serving in my own way, and I'm contributing to something I think is really important. And um, in terms of, uh, there is no comparison between when I was on active duty and the responsibilities I had then in terms of um, the number of demands on my time and the things that were going on and the kind of the rhythm of my day and the, the travel to the region. Uh, I, my, my schedule and that experience was as densely packed as possible. 
I'm working hard now, but in comparison to the way that I was working uh, in my last job as in the in the military at, at Central Command, um, I have a lot of a lot more margin. I don't I don't worry about um, the Middle East as much as I did. I'm I keep an eye on it, but it's not my responsibility. I'm not concerned. Uh, you know, I don't get calls at night. I don't get calls over the weekend. I don't have people that bring me you know secret binders over the weekend so I can keep my head in the game. Um, and so I, that, which means I have enough opportunity to actually plan and actually travel and do things that I couldn't do when I was on active duty. So um, I loved my time in uniform and I was privileged to serve in some really remarkable places. Um, but I love what I'm doing now. I miss sailors. I miss interacting with troops and, and having the opportunity to, you, you realize that you've got a pretty bully pulpit to help shape um, some young people in terms of giving them your life lessons to say, hey, you know what, don't be stupid and do what I did. You know, don't do this. <laughs> uh, be smarter than I was and, and giving them um, an opportunity to to benefit from your experience. I, I really loved, the thing I loved the most about my time in the military as a senior officer was the opportunity to spend time with, with young sailors, Marines, and soldiers, and airmen. Well, that's something I think the best flag officers do, so that's great. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on. It was really fantastic to hear all your thoughts on all these different issues and about your career, and um, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, AJ. Enjoy the chat. All the best to you. Great. You too. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. That was Admiral Mark Fox. Got through a lot of issues about his career, about the military, a little bit of history. So we'll be back soon once again for another episode, and I hope you'll join us for that too. So for now, this has been A.J. Bruno for The A.J. Bruno Show. I'm signing off, and so long.